Heavenly Father, as we reflect on the wisdom of your word this morning, particularly on our church life together and how we should address and resolve ultimately disputes amongst us, uh, please may this wisdom shine through brightly and may it also uh, help us and inform us in the way that we live together as a church community. And we pray this ultimately such that we would be a united church, uh, that we would guard against any danger of division, uh, such that we bring glory to you and we please you in our church life together. Amen. Uh, Now, I know that nobody's going to fall off their chair uh, when I say that uh, Christians sometimes disagree. Within every church, there are inevitably people who will hold different points of view. And maybe as you reflect on our church life together, uh, you can think of some of them. Uh, The question is, what should we do when we disagree? Well, when we look at the church in Rome in the first century, uh, there were clearly tensions in it. It seems like the fault lines of disagreements fell along uh, ethnic and cultural lines between the Jewish and the Gentile Christians in that church community. And the impact was very serious. Uh, These disagreements were causing division and they were causing disunity. And as we know, ultimately, A church that is divided is a church that falls. So in chapter 14 through indeed to chapter 15 verse 13, Paul now turns to address these issues. And in so doing, he furnishes us with great wisdom as to how to deal with disagreements within the church. Uh, Indeed, we're going to study these over the course of two weeks. Uh, Rod will be looking further at the remainder of chapter 14 and into chapter 15 next week. Uh, What I'm proposing to do this morning is this. We're going to work through the text together, uh, and I'm going to explain it. And as we work through it, I'm going to briefly pause at various points to pose questions as to how this wisdom should inform our church life together today. So, what should we do when Christians disagree? And the first point is, and it depends on what they are disagreeing about Uh, For Christians, a disputable matter must be distinguished from an indisputable matter. On the one hand, uh, the Apostle Paul considers some matters to be beyond dispute. Uh, They are critical to Christian belief and they should be beyond dispute. Indeed, everything Paul has taught in the letter so far, chapters 1 to 11, is what we call the gospel, the good news of faith in Christ. And that is the basis on which people can be made right with God. And Paul would say there is absolutely no leeway for compromise or collaboration with anyone who denies or distorts this gospel. We'll see it when we get to chapter 16, but we'll have a sneak preview. Chapter 16, verse 17. I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned Keep away from them. We know, of course, uh, all scripture, all of the Bible, is God-breathed. And hence we should stand firm against any view which violates the clear teaching of scripture on matters of belief or conduct, what we believe or how we live. On the other hand, uh, Paul also taught that there are such things as disputable matters, These are subjects on which Christians 
may legitimately agree to differ. Chapter 14, verse 1. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Uh, Disputable matters are secondary issues. Uh, They relate to behavior, not doctrine. They are often grounded in tradition or culture. What was in dispute in the church in Rome back in the first century? Well, uh, it seems that the differences in view arise from different understanding of the ongoing applicability of the law of Moses to Christian living. Uh, This was not concerned with how somebody was saved, but how they should live once they were saved. And it's clear from what we can see that there were a few topics which got people particularly hot under the collar. Uh, Firstly, in verse 2, it was concerning what Christians should and shouldn't eat. Uh, Look at verse 2. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Uh, The second comes up in verse 5, which was to do with observing certain Jewish special days, such as Sabbaths and festivals. Look at verse 5. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Uh, Indeed, when we get to chapter 15 next week, we'll see yet another, whether Christians should drink wine. So, as we Pause briefly. Uh, Let's think about us today. Uh, If we are in dispute with fellow Christians, uh, the first question to ask is this. Is this a disputable or an indisputable matter? Uh, If the dispute challenges or changes the Bible's teaching on belief or conduct, then of course the way forward involves submitting to what Scripture says. Uh, The issue that they were grappling with in Rome uh, was a very divisive issue. It was a disputable matter, but it was dividing the church into two camps. Uh, On the one hand, there are those described as the weak, and indeed when we get to chapter 15, we'll see that the other camp are described as the strong. Uh, The weak in the church were probably mainly Christians from a Jewish background. Uh, They wanted to keep the Old Testament Uh, kosher laws particularly, and to observe the Sabbaths. It was part of their upbringing. It was part of the culture. It was the air they had breathed all their life. And so now, you see, it was deeply ingrained. And it it was something that they just didn't feel they could give up lightly. And in a pagan city like Rome, uh, kosher meat would not have been widely available, if at all. And hence, driven by their Jewish sensibilities these Christians had opted to become vegetarians. Uh, We need to be clear that uh, the weak are not weak in the sense of their saving faith in Christ. Rather, they are weak in the outworking of their faith in Christ in their everyday life, in their practice. In other words, it's it's to do with their convictions about what their faith allows or prohibits. And it seems that they have not yet fully worked through the implications of being justified by faith. Uh, The weak are spiritually immature. Uh, The strong, on the other hand, would probably have been mainly Gentile Christians. Uh, For them, these Gentile Christians, uh, these kosher laws and the Sabbath observances, 
They were no big deal. Uh, these strong Christians didn't have the, that religious and cultural background. They felt complete freedom to eat whatever they wanted. And they didn't see any need to attach to particular significance to particular days in the Jewish calendar. When we pause and reflect on how this applies to us today, uh, differences of opinion on disputable matters take many shapes and forms in church life today. Often they're grounded in different cultural backgrounds or different traditions. Uh, they may be due to upbringing and differences between generations. Uh, some Christians differ in their preferences for style of service and music. Uh, these differences may lead to the forming of different church denominations. Uh, the Christian who speaks in tongues and gets messages from God uh, gravitates towards a charismatic church. Uh, those who prefer a more orderly, controlled form of service go to the Reformed Presbyterian Church, the Frozen Chosen. Here we are. Uh, different denominations also may arise due to different views concerning baptism, for example. Uh, these differences may also lead to the forming of different congregations, even within one church. So, of course, it is common uh, for churches to have a traditional service and a more modern uh, contemporary service. And sadly, it means that often the church divides along generational lines. Uh, that traditional services are mostly made up of people from the older generations, and the families and the youth gravitate to their own form of service. And I can't help but feeling that each is depriving the other of the riches of real Christian community together. Remember when we looked in Romans about the church community being like a body, where each person has, is a different part of the body, and each person has different gifts and experiences for the blessing of other members in the body. I think it's very sad when a church is divided into different congregations, one a traditional, uh, one a modern, the older people in one, generally the more younger people in the other. In a previous church in which I worked, I remember one lady who um, had a wonderful attitude. Uh, she was in her 60s herself, uh, but even though we had a traditional service and a modern service, and particularly the evening service was for the youth, uh, she would go to both. Yeah, she'd go to her service in the morning, traditional, but she'd also come to the evening service. And I spoke to Pat after one of the services and said, how do you go uh, when you come along to this modern service? Do you feel at home in it? And she said this, well, it's not really my style, but my heart is just warm to see all these young people praising God together, and I want to encourage them. What a great attitude to have. And she didn't, her own upbringing and her own preferences, uh, determine her, the limit of her fellowship. How great. So let's go back to Rome. Uh, in Rome, the churches were divided into two camps, uh, the weak, as we've seen, and the strong. And whilst the division was generally uh, along the sort of Jewish-Gentile lines, uh, it wasn't exclusively the case. As we're going to see in chapter 15 next week, even though Paul himself was a Jew, he actually counts himself among the strong. Uh, look at chapter 15, verse 1. Uh, we who are strong, he's including himself, ought to bear with the failings of the weak. Uh, so, uh, Paul would fall into the category, in chapter 14, verse 2, of the Christian believer who has the freedom to eat anything, even though he's a Jew. So, uh, these disputable matters, uh, they were causing division in the church. 
Uh, members of the church were quarrelling with each other. The unity of the church was giving way to disunity. Uh, love was lost. Tension was high. Look again at verse 1 of chapter 14. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarrelling over disputable matters. They were quarrelling. And human nature being what it is, in different way, each group, uh, the strong and the weak, were disproving of the other. Look at verse 3. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. In the church at Rome, uh, the strong, of course, are the Gentile believers who have the freedom to eat whatever they want. Uh, They enjoy the freedom that the gospel brings. Uh, They understand that the Old Testament food regulations are fulfilled in Christ. But where they go wrong is this. They then treat with contempt their weak Jewish fellow believers who still have these scruples about diet. Uh, The strong believers, they feel spiritually superior. Uh, They look down on the weak Christians as being rather simple and narrow-minded. They see themselves as being mature, advanced, wise, spiritually sophisticated. They've got it all together. And the weak, poor things, haven't. And yet it's interesting that the ill feeling cuts both ways. Whereas the strong treat the weak with contempt, the weak judge the strong. The weak, the the strictly Jewish, stricter Jewish group, uh, judges the strong Gentile group as being too free. You see, if the the strong group are accused of being legalists, they counterattack with the label, you lawless lot, you lawless Gentiles. You count yourself a Christian, and yet you can still do that. You see, the weak group are convinced that the strong are living in a way that displeases and dishonors God, and so they judge them. Let's pause again. Let's think about ourselves. Is it not so easy for our hearts to become critical of those we disagree with? It's wise, therefore, if we are in dispute with fellow Christians, to ask ourselves this question. Am I in danger of either judging or holding in contempt my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, those who don't agree with me on this secondary issue? Let's go back to Rome. In using the term weak, it's interesting that Paul, he's not choosing a neutral term. Uh, Of course, It's evaluative. Uh, It's a negative term. In calling them weak, he's saying that in some way they they are wrong. There's something deficient in their understanding. It's a negative evaluation. And yet, did you notice? The surprise is that while Paul holds his own convictions as to as a member of the strong, he doesn't insist that the weak Christians in Rome agree with him. He doesn't 
commend one practice over the other. He doesn't commend one practice over the other. What does he do? Instead, he exhorts both groups not to treat each other with contempt or to judge each other. He pleads with them to accept and to welcome each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 1 again. Accept, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarrelling over disputable matters. It's interesting when you look into the, uh, the word rendered here, uh, accept, the Greek word actually means this. It means to draw in. It means to open up your circle and your arms. It means to warmly welcome somebody. It means to be flexible, uh, to adjust your life, to be willing to make changes in order to have a relationship with somebody, particularly somebody who's very different to you. Paul says, accept one another. But not only does he exhort them to accept each other, but he also gives them some reasons as to why. Uh, Did you notice it at the end of verse 3? They shouldn't judge or hold in contempt their fellow Christian brothers or sisters because, verse 3, for God has accepted them. For God has accepted them. You see, God has accepted both the weak Christians and the strong Christians through their faith in Christ. Who are they to reject somebody whom God has accepted? No, warmly welcome them. Embrace them as a brother and a sister in Christ. Be willing to be flexible. Warmly open your arms to them. So, in a, in a sense, you could say the question implied in verses 1 to 3 is this. Who are we to reject somebody whom God has accepted? And in verse 4, a second question is posed. Who are we to judge somebody whom God will judge? Uh, Christ, of course, is the Lord of every Christian. And every Christian is a servant of Christ. And therefore, both strong and the weak, they are answerable to Christ as their Lord. They are his servants. They serve the Lord. They do not serve each other. Look at verse 4. Who are you to judge somebody else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. When Paul talks here of a believer standing or falling before the Lord, he's probably referring to Christ's approval or disapproval of how they've lived as Christians. It is the Lord, not fellow believers, whom Christians must please. And it is the Lord, not fellow believers, who will ultimately determine the acceptability of a believer's conduct. So the point is this. Accept and don't judge. Because God has accepted your brothers and sisters in Christ and he'll also judge them. He'll also judge them. So, uh, whether weak or strong, what we then see is this. 
What is important is the attitude of the heart. If somebody is fully convinced in their mind that their practice is pleasing to God and it honours God, then that person shouldn't be pressurised to offend against their conscience. Look at verse 5. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Let's think about us today. When people in churches disagree, it's easy for them to become defensive. When people in churches disagree, it's easy for them to each become entrenched in their own point of view. It's our natural disposition. We say, I'm right, they're wrong. And yet, what do we see in Scripture? We see there is great wisdom in stepping back and re-examining our convictions so that we can be fully convinced in our own minds that they are indeed well-grounded. So therefore, if we are in dispute with a fellow Christian on a secondary matter, it is wise to ask ourselves, am I fully convinced of my position? What is my position based on? Is it well-grounded in Scripture? Or is it more to do with tradition, or background, or custom, or culture? So let's go back to Rome. When Paul gives the weak the freedom to follow their conscience, uh, it's not to say that he is content that they remain weak. Uh, His hope, of course, would have been that over time they would mature in their faith, that they would mature in their understanding of the gospel. Uh, His hope would be that one day the weak would become strong. And yet, of course, this is only going to happen if they re-examine their convictions. It is possible, therefore, and it is permissible, therefore, for Christians to maintain different views and practices on secondary issues. And they can do that if they are fully convinced in their own mind that their position pleases God. In Paul's assessment of the church at Rome, both the strong and the weak sincerely believe that their conduct honours the Lord. And the practices of both are motivated by a desire to please and to glorify the Lord. Look at verse 6. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. You see, since Christ is the Lord of every Christian... No Christian can live solely for themselves. Both the strong and the weak live and die under the lordship of Christ. Their different practices are endorsed because both are attempting in their own way to please their master. Look at verse 7. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die... We die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died 
and return to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. And let's come back to ourselves today because this gives us another set of questions to direct to our hearts as we re-examine our convictions. We can ask this. Is this the best way for me to honour Christ in this situation? Uh, Can I, in good conscience, do this before Christ as my Lord? Uh, Can I do it in Christ's name, thanking him for it? Then in verses uh, 10 to 12, uh, Paul starts pulling the strings of what he has said together. And he returns to the theme of our accountability to God at the final judgment. And he reminds here both the strong and the weak that we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Look at verse 10 onwards. You then, uh, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, and every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Two implications flow out of this when we are in disagreement with our fellow brother or sister in Christ. Two implications. Uh, Firstly, as we've seen, our brother or sister will be accountable to the Lord. Therefore, we can leave the judgment to him. He will judge them. We need not judge them. And a second implication flows out of it. We will be answerable to the Lord. Therefore, we will have to give an account of our behaviour to God. Is it not easy uh, to find fault in others? The wiser course is to direct our powers of perception at our own hearts. Rather than judging others or holding them in contempt, it's far wiser to weigh up our own conduct and to consider how we will answer for it when we stand before God as our judge. Because on that day, of course, the motives of our hearts will be laid bare. And on that day, it will be revealed if we have been driven by a desire to honour and to please Christ in every area of life. That verse we looked at in 1 Corinthians 10, which we use for our kids' uh, talk, is a verse which summarises it beautifully, and indeed as we go out from today, a verse which can, we can apply to every thought in our hearts and every aspect of our life, particularly when uh, we think about when we're in dispute with others in the church family. Let's close with this. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. So wherever the, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, uh, we know that disputes will arise within our church and other churches. We know that we will have uh, differences of view on secondary matters, on disputable matters. We pray that we would indeed live out the wisdom of your word, that we wouldn't allow them to become divisive amongst us, that we would continue to welcome each other, even where there are differences of view on these matters, 
to warmly open our arms, to be flexible and to be willing to embrace the other. So we do pray, therefore, for a deeper sense of unity in our church. Help us as we move forward to discern your will for us as a body of your people and to remain united together, we pray. And to do this to your glory. Amen.